You're listening to the Seahawks Insiders. Cam Chancellor comes up and just unloads. Number 31, clean his clock. Getting you ready for Seahawks football every Sunday. Russell has time, fires down the middle. Got his man, Baldwin. He is in. Touchdown, Seahawks. Doug Baldwin again. Powered by Seahawks.com. What's going on, 12s, and welcome to week two of the Seahawks Insider Podcast. I'm Jackie Montgomery, digital video host for the Seattle Seahawks, joined by Jen Mueller, and you hear her every Seahawks game day, the sideline reporter for the Seahawks Radio Network. And we are talking about our loss, unfortunate loss to the Green Bay Packers, as well as previewing the upcoming matchup against the San Francisco 49ers. And Jen, you were there, obviously, this past week in Green Bay, and tough loss, tough place to play for the Seattle Seahawks. It's a really tough place to play, and when you look at the schedule, you know that it doesn't matter what time of year you play in Green Bay, that you're going to have your hands full, and and I think that it's hard to have that game right out of the gate yeah, for a absolutely. number of reasons, right? And now that it's over with, it's tough because you don't have anything else to compare it against, mm-hmm. right? And you can't even say that you've got a win in the win column and that, you know, you, you've gotten off to the start that you wanted to. I think that what that game gave you was a measuring stick on a couple of different fronts. And look, you've got to have the benchmark. You, you have to start someplace. Mm-hmm. Like when I was talking to Riso Diambo today in the locker room, you got to have someplace to start. Forget whether it was a good or bad start. You can't do anything about that now. Let's figure out the corrections that need to be made. And I think overall the schedule shapes up really nicely for the Seahawks, the way that they alternate road and home. Mm -hmm. And that just means they get a chance to do the same thing to the Niners that the Packers did to them and make it a very difficult game. Yeah, both teams, both the Seahawks and the uh, the 49ers coming off losses. We'll get to more of that in in a minute because obviously the 49ers have a test to, tough test ahead for them coming here to Seattle. But you talk about that measuring stick from that Green Bay and I mean what really stood out to you? I mean, obviously the defense played really well, but there's a lot of things that they need to look at when it comes to the offensive side of the ball. Sure, and let's talk about the defense because that's what everybody's been talking about in let's a very start off the good light, news, right? not the bad news. Yes. Here's what struck me. I'm watching 91 run around like crazy yeah. on the defense side. And I'm like, who is that guy? <laughs> that guy looks like tall and he looks long. And it's Sheldon Richardson. Yeah. And I'd seen him in practice and, and I'd seen him kind of in a jersey, but he just looks different on the field. He was a monster in all. All the right ways that the Seahawks need him to be. I was so impressed watching him play and just watching what he was able to generate. That was impressive. Especially when you, when you consider that he had less than a week with the Seahawks to prepare, adjust to their scheme, adjust to what they do. And he came in and made as much of an impact as you would expect from, you know, a guy who has six days to learn everything. And a guy who was asked to do less in this defense than he was in New York previously. In New York, they would sometimes line him up inside. They would put him on the outside. They've even dropped him into coverage as a linebacker. That's the kind of physicality that he has. But you don't need to do that in this defense. And Pete Carroll noted this week that they really tried to keep things simple so that Mm -hmm. he could get his feet wet. And Sheldon appreciates it. It's not that he doesn't want to do more, but in the conversation that I had with him, he goes, look, I only have to focus on one thing. I can do that (laughs) one thing really, really well. Yeah. 
He said, give me a couple weeks. I'm happy to do a little bit more, but I'm curious to see how much more they would Mm -hmm. ask to do, unless there was a special package, you know, just kind of a, not really a trick play, but just kind of a wrinkle that they wanted to throw in from time to time. I think, uh, I think just letting him pin his ears back and go is a good thing. Yeah, when he did his first media um, press conference, he definitely pointed out that he's coming into an already stacked defense. So however they want to incorporate him, he is excited about it. And he knows that this is going to be a tough front for any offensive line that they go against. But Bobby Wagner, he was talking about Sheldon Richardson today and just what he brings to that line and how teams need to be a account for everyone on that the, on that defensive line because you can't double team one person because that's leaving somebody else open to come at you. But he talked about not only how he's impacting the line, but how he's fitting in so well in the locker room. Have a listen. It's just another piece, man. Another piece. Uh, he's, you know, I think, uh, you know, if they wouldn't have held him on a couple of those plays, he probably would have got a couple sacks too. I think it just makes it really hard for the, the offenses to, um, really pinpoint one guy because you got, you know, Mike B, you got Cliff, you got um, him, you got uh, Frank, and, you know, me and KJ. Me and KJ kind of try to sneak in there every now and then. Uh, so it's like you can't really, you know, double team because if you double team, you're leaving one of those guys who are pretty good, you know, passers open. And, uh, you know, just love his energy. When he first came in here, he just, you know, he fit right in, was talking trash, just like we, we talked trash, and it was just fun. All right, well, let's move away a little bit from the defense. Obviously, when you look at the four sacks and the nine quarterback hits and just what we were able to see from them in game one, some not-so-good things on the offensive side of the ball. But first, let's start off with a little bit of the good Russell Wilson. You can see that he's healthy again. He made a, a couple of really good runs that got them first downs. What have you seen from Russell, and obviously just game one, but just him being healthy again? Well, he said that it feels good to be able to run, especially to be explosive with that running ability. And I'll say this, last year he did not have a run of nine yards or more until week 11 of the season. He had two of them on Sunday, and one of those was a 30-yard gain that helped pick up a first down and get them into the red zone. So to see Russell do things like that, I think it's really encouraging. It's not so encouraging when he is forced to run in that manner, Mm -hmm. but the fact that he is able to provide a little bit of a spark and to kind of get out of some of that trouble and pressure, I think that that was a really good thing. So Russell Wilson was the leading rusher for the Seahawks against Green Bay with 40 yards. You you don't always want to see the quarterback with the leading rushing yards, but that takes us to the run game and what they weren't able to establish. Well, it was hard to establish the the run, Mm -hmm. right? And that had trickle-down effects for everything, you know, for the offensive line, for the passing game, because if you can't establish the run, teams are going to start taking away the big plays down the field, right? And so we saw the three and outs. The Seahawks did not pick up their first first down until midway through the second quarter. Yeah. You know, they had less than 40 yards of offense (laughs) until the last couple minutes of the first half. Was that three yards of offense in the first quarter? In the first quarter and a half, they were averaging 0.3 yards of play, which is certainly not where you want to be. So here's kind of what happened there. Tom Cable was talking about the offensive line. And for right now, they're going to keep the same five Mm -hmm. that they started against the Packers. They're going to start the same five against the 49ers. Reese Odiombo made his first start in the NFL at left tackle. Play number three of the game, 
there was a little bit of a miscue, and it just kind of knocked them off their rhythm, especially Reese, who, who's trying to really yeah. set that edge. And then it all started trickling down from there. Eddie Lacy is not the guy who gets the ball in the backfield and then creates the space. He gives he, he takes what the offensive line gives him and then creates more yards. Yeah. I thought Chris Carson, however, mm-hmm. was a huge bright spot in being able to create some of those yards. His skill set is different from that of Eddie Lacy in that we saw him kind of run around in the backfield. I think he probably ran for 15, 20 yards on a play that actually only ended up to be a four-yard gain by the time he bailed <laughs> Russell Wilson out. But, you know, he was just able to do a lot. I would not be surprised if you see him get some more carries and some more looks um, as they try to establish that and just get everybody back on track. Absolutely. I mean, when you look at just 18 rush attempts, it's not what they're looking for. It's not what they're looking for. And so I know that a lot of folks this week have said, well, how come the Seahawks don't go into the hurry up offense more often? Because they're so good at doing that at the end of the half and, you know, the end of games. And that's true. But keep in mind that run blocking and pass blocking are two very different things. And run blocking is typically easier for an offensive lineman to do. Pass blocking requires a different skill set. If you've got a younger offensive line or guys across the offensive line who are getting situated in new positions, like your right guard and right Mm -hmm. tackle, you want to put them in a position to succeed. Run blocking makes it easier for them. If you go into a hurry-up style of offense, now the offensive line has to think a little bit more. They've got to pick up guys differently. That half step that that's going to cost you in thinking is also going to take away, if you keep doing that, right, it also starts taking away what you thought was going to be a sure opportunity. So there's a reason that they keep sticking with this. It's not just because they're stubborn. It's because it's the team (laughs) philosophy and because that's what they are ultimately built to do. They just have to do it. And Pete Carroll, he was asked that exact question. Why don't you go with a more up-tempo offense? And he said that you also have to take into account your opponent. Because if for some reason that up-tempo offense stalls at all, you're giving the ball right back to Aaron Rodgers and an offense that you know can move that ball down the field. And you need to give your defense some sort of break when they're already on the field as much as they are. Absolutely. And and there's, you know, even if you, best case scenario, let's say that you have an up-tempo offense and you score every time you touch the ball like the Denver Broncos did a few years ago when Peyton Manning was setting records. If the average drive time is two and a half to three minutes, your defense is still going to be on the field a lot during the game, right? So best case scenario on that one, you might be taking away one of the strengths of the team in your defense by exposing them to more plays in a game than is necessary. All right, well, let's go back to some of those positives. Obviously, um, you know, like you said, when we are looking at the offensive line, things that they want to do better, Tom Cable deciding to go with the same five, Tom Cable and the coaching staff deciding to go with the same five starters, um, which if you look from left to right, it goes with um, Reese Odiambo, Luke Jokel, Justin Britt, Mark Lewinsky, and uh, Jermaine Effetti there at right tackle. So, um, but let's go, like I said, talking about some of the bright spots and one of those bright spots being Earl Thomas. I mean, obviously we saw him throughout the preseason and what he was able to do, but seeing him on the field for a full 60 minutes, he played every defensive snap for this team. And I mean, he looked great out there. He showed no hesitation at all. No, 
And he is so fast. And yeah. I know that he didn't have a pick, but boy, he was close, he was close. on a couple. Yeah. And he covered a lot of ground to get there. And I think that's one of the most encouraging things was just watching him get back into that role and watching that Legion of Boom minus Jeremy Lane because yeah. of the early call in that game. But it just looked like between Earl Thomas getting right, Shaq Griffin getting settled in there a little bit, that looks like it's going to be one of the strengths of this team. And how encouraging is that to see, you know, guys like Shaq Griffin and Justin Coleman just, you know, they didn't know that they were going to be put in that position. Obviously, they game plan for that um, possibility, but being able to come in, step right in and not back down from such a prolific passer like Aaron Rodgers. And really, I think just frustrate him a little bit, too. Yeah. You know, it, it's hard to rattle him. But it did look at times like he was starting to get frustrated. I thought the interesting thing about Justin Coleman was, you know, when Jeremy Lane was removed from the game, politely asked to leave, <laughs> however you want to say this, you know, we were kind of sitting over there trying to figure out who was going to come in and, and play nickel. And I thought it was going to be Nico Thorpe. And if you just kind of look at who's been around the team and kind of who would be listed next on the depth chart, that was a pretty logical mm -hmm. assumption to put Justin Coleman in when he has not had very much time with the team. <laughs> Another I thought, guy that, yeah. <laughs> I, I thought that said a lot about what Pete and the coaching staff think of him and his ability that it would be him over a guy who's been in that system. Now, Justin Coleman also very fast. Mm -hmm. Nico's probably better on the outside than the inside. So Coleman is the special specialist when it comes to covering the slot receivers, but still to have to fit into the system after not being here very long. I, I thought that spoke highly of him and Pete spoke highly of him this week too. Justin Coleman played very well. I mean, you guys might not notice that I mean, you go back and you check the plays and particularly in scramble situations, he and Kyle were going at it. They were hip to hip the whole time. Uh, he, he did a very nice job. All right, well, one guy on defense who um, would have been one of the heroes of the day, but unfortunately, because on that same play, there was a call for a block in the back, and so the touch, the pick six was negated, but Nas Jones, his very first snap of his very first NFL game, and he picks off Aaron Rodgers, a guy who had not thrown an interception in seven straight regular season games when you go back to last season. First and 10 at the Seattle 32. Montgomery stays in the backfield. He hasn't touched the ball yet. Rogers out of the shotgun. Going to throw again. Looks. Dumped it. It's intercepted. Threw it right to the Seahawks. Coming near sidelines. Down the side is Nas Jones. He's going to go all the way. 10, 5. Are you kidding me? Touchdown Seahawks. Flags are down. Perhaps a block below the waist. But more flags are down. But the Seahawks, Nas Jones, the rookie defensive tackle, it all the way in 68 yards for a touchdown yeah and here's the funny thing about Nas so we're talking to him after the game and I'd seen this on the sideline and I'm standing there and he he gets the interception the play plays out and then he's got an ice bag over his eye and I'm thinking <laughs> well maybe he got poked in the eye you know somebody yeah. celebrating with him or you know gets a little crazy out there and we're talking after the game and he goes you know, no, I, I had to intercept that ball. He hit me in the eye. And I'm thinking, because I don't usually wear a football helmet, I want to stop the interview and go, how is that even possible? Are you not wearing the face mask? 
as it turns out, his defensive teammates this week were still trying to figure out how that could happen. But, yes, <laughs> he, he ended up with a black eye and the interception. But, um, yeah, he's been fun to watch. And we talked about a story in training camp and just how cool it is for him to be on the field after the um, disease that he has been dealing with since he was in high school where 16, he was yeah. paralyzed from um, the compartmental syndrome, acute compartmental syndrome that he's been Good dealing with. Good for you. With. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I, I thought that Nas was, Nas is going to be a good piece. How do you see, what do you see from that rotation on the defensive line, kind of going back to the defense and how they're able to work with the, the guys that they have? Well, I see Cliff Averill and Michael Bennett being able to take a few more reps during the game from the sideline, which I know that they're not going to like right now, but they are <laughs> going to like the deeper you get into the season. I, I think your internal, your interior rotation is going to be a lot of Sheldon Richardson and Jerron Reed playing side by side. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Nas is going to come in on the outside and play a little of that three technique. And then I think we're still trying to figure out where David Bass is going to play exactly. He's got the ability to go inside and outside. To me, he looks a little bit leaner, like he's going to be on the Mm -hmm. outside. But you still got some – you've got Sheldon Richardson taking up, like, you know, like three bodies worth of people there. (laughs) So that's pretty solidified. Uh, One guy that we don't have on our list, but uh, what did you see from Terrence Garvin? I I know that it was – uh, it was his fault as to why they kind of got that um, touchdown late when they caught the defense sleeping because he wasn't getting off of the field fast enough. But when you looked at his stats, they looked pretty good. Um, did you see? Did he stand out to you at all? I would say that he didn't stand out, which is a good thing in that outside of that play, which, look, Aaron Rodgers catches every team doing that. That is a really tough thing yeah. to prepare for, right? Yeah. He knows Absolutely. it's a free play. Mm-hmm. He's just going to do it, and you have to be aware of that. But in general, I didn't look at that linebacking unit and think, oh, man, they're missing Michael Wilhoy, mm-hmm. who we hope is going to be playing this week. But I-, I thought he's solid. And, you know, you've already got Bobby and KJ, who are two of the best in the league. And he fills out that trio rather nicely. A couple guys that they are hoping to get back as we kind of transition into looking at the 49ers. Pete Carroll said that Tyler Lockett is you know, he looked great on special teams this last game against Green Bay, and they played him. Um, he got more reps than they were anticipating, but because he looks so good, he's going to be a full go for this week against the San Francisco 49ers and be much more much more involved with the receiving core. And so I think what that means is you're going to see him take over a few more snaps. Mm-hmm. Um, last year we saw that towards the end of the year where he had moved ahead of Jermaine Curse just kind of in the pecking yeah. order of wide receivers. And I think that's what you're going to see a little bit more of this week. Doug Baldwin's going to be kind of your, your number one go-to guy just because he's got the hands. And I think you're going to see Tyler involved in more of those plays where he can get down the field a little bit more. And I would expect his snap count to go up even more this week. Do you see, so then with the battle between him and Paul Richardson, how do you think that plays out with um, who kind of goes into that number two spot? Do you still think Tyler Lockett jumps over him as well? I think that's probably what it's going to end up to look like Mm -hmm. this week, just because of overall skill set and time on the field. Paul Richardson, while he has been around the program a little bit longer than Tyler, Mm -hmm. I think Tyler's got more um, real-time, real-life experience with this group on Sundays. Richardson did have that spectacular catch where he was able to get both feet down right on the edge of that sideline. It was pretty impressive. 
Uh, moving on to running back, some of the good news. Pete Carroll says it seems promising that they will see Thomas Rawls back on the field. I think he said that he's prepared to go and we're counting on that. So it was, it was unfortunate, I think, for everyone to see that he was kind of a late scratch for the game against Green Bay because of how punishing his running style is when he's at full go. And he brings a different element to the team. He is, I think Pete Carroll said violent, or maybe it was Tom, Tom Cable, Cable said, mm -hmm. you know, what does he bring? Violence. Yeah. <laughs> Which know? I think is a really aggressive word to use. But it, it is, but it is very true. And, you know, that entire running back group is just very diverse. There's a lot of things that work well in that in that group. There's a lot of carryover as, just, as far as talent. <laughs> but as Tom Cable said, if you block it right, they're going to run and they're going to get the yards. And I think Thomas Rawls could help just kind of get that spark going and, and get them on the right track. I was talking to Chris Carson today about that exact thing, what Thomas Rawls brings to this team. And he, his first word was energy. Just, and I mean, you see it when he does a press conference, his energy, his passion, and the guys truly feed off of that. And so they really hope to have him on the sidelines with them um, in a uniform this this weekend. Um, but so as we transition into San Francisco, they are coming off of a tough loss at, of their own, um, a loss at home where they were beat by 20 points against the Carolina Panthers. I think it's 23 to three, that loss. And we were talking about it earlier. It looks almost kind of like a mirror image, their offense and our offense right now. Uh, well, well not, not in the, <laughs> let's just clarify. In the struggles, yes, right? Um, exactly. Neither team scored a touchdown. Exactly, yeah. Both quarterbacks got hit more than anybody would like to see. Brian Hoyer was sacked four times. There were eight additional quarterback hits. And this is going to be interesting. In talking to Michael Bennett after the game against the Packers, he noted that week one and two are always hard because you don't have any tendencies on a team. It's yeah. not really until week three three or four that teams really stick with what they've been doing. You know, you don't change things in week seven, eight, or nine, especially with the 49ers team under a new head coach who's transitioning from running the option to running a spread system. So instead of having a Colin Kaepernick type back mm -hmm. there, who's going to run and be able to do things, you know, kind of similar to what Russell Wilson can do. You've got Brian Hoyer, who really would play it more traditional, more safe. And so getting tendencies for these guys, as much as that offense is trying to learn itself in San Francisco, our defense is trying to figure out which team do we watch? Yeah. You know, how much of what we saw last week is what we're going to see this week. Now, I don't think it's going to matter that much for our defense. I think that they're licking their chops to get to the quarterback and to cause some problems, but it's going to be interesting to see how that one plays out in the next few weeks. Well, and also with Brian Hoyer, too, we haven't, you know, he's been such a journeyman in mm -hmm. the league. He's a nine-year veteran, but he's played for, I think it's five teams or something. Um, and so just trying to game plan for him, a guy that you don't see as often, what challenges does that present? Well, I think that, you know, you would have some looks different looks from him because he has been around the league in mm -hmm. different ways and and it really just goes back to you're not sure who he's going to call as his number one yeah. receiver how he's going to respond to different pressures are they going to be able to get their running game going I know Carlos Hyde has had some good games against Seattle but that's not a guaranteed at CenturyLink with this kind of defense 
Yes, and going back to Brian Hoyer, Cliff Averill, who is known for getting a lot of sacks, 11 and a half last season, he had this to say about Brian Hoyer. He does a great job at, you know, controlling the game. Um, you know, he, he, he can throw the ball, that's for sure. You know, I was watching the film earlier, and it was like, oh, he got an arm on him. Um, you know, he, he, he's great at making the adjustments that he needs to make. He's great at, uh, you know, like I said, throwing the deep ball and, and making the right checks. It's, but I know one thing for sure, 32 out of 32 quarterbacks hate getting hit. <laughs> so if we can get after him, uh, you know, that, that, that'll rattle him a little bit. Well, Jen, before we were listening to that sound of Brian, you brought up Carlos Hyde, a running back who can catch the ball and, you know, and run the ball, obviously. And, you know, going in the Pete Carroll era, there's only been a small handful of running backs that have gained 100 yards or more here at CenturyLink Field, only six to be exact. And Carlos Hyde, he is one of them. In the last the last time that San Francisco was here in Seattle, I think he had it was either 102 or 103 yards, rushed for two touchdowns. So what does that what what does that present for this team? Obviously this defense is very good at stopping the run though. Well, it's a source of pride. Yes. And they do not like seeing guys put up 100 yards. I remember when him. he did that last year, that was I think the biggest thing that they were upset about. They got the win obviously, but they were so upset that they allowed because they they called him it was garbage yards at the end of the game. They allowed him to find the end zone. Yeah, and and I would think that they, they wouldn't necessarily take that game personally going into this week's matchup, but they know that it's out there and they know mm -hmm. that he's capable of doing that. And I believe uh, what Cliff Averill noted yesterday was that you've got to make sure that it's not just him one-on-one -on -one getting to the second-level tackle where he has to be brought down by a DB. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure that you're swarming him. You want to make sure that you've got him contained and that there's a couple of guys working to bring him down. Otherwise, you are going to end up giving up more yards than you would like. Last week, however, the Seahawks gave up just 84 rushing yards to the Packers, so that was a really nice start to the season. But all of this kind of comes back to what Pete Carroll said yesterday about making sure that it's not just stopping the rushing yards, it's getting off the field on third downs. One area would have been third down that we needed to play better to get off the field to get the ball back to the offense. That was where we came up short. And, and uh, you know, when you're over 50% on third down conversions, you're not, you're not doing things well. And we can do better there. And last week against Green Bay, 56% was the conversion rate on those third down opportunities for Green Bay. They were 9 of 16, which is too much. And, and everybody has said it doesn't matter where you want to look at, you know, if you want to look at the offense and what they didn't do, everybody on defense has said, look at what we didn't do, too. <laughs> you know, we have some areas that we can get better and get cleaned up this week. Looking at the other side of the ball for the San Francisco 49ers, their linebacker crew led by Navarro Bowman. What do you see from them? Obviously, no Reuben Foster, one of their um, their second draft pick of the um, of this past draft. What he can, he has gone for the season, he, or no, excuse me, gone for this game after he got injured, I think it was just in the first quarter or something. So what can we see from their linebacking core with no Reuben Foster? Well, I think Navarro Bowman probably gets a little bit more attention because he is going to be the most um, veteran mm -hmm. and the playmaker. And of course, I think people in Seattle remember the horrific injury that he suffered here in Seattle a few years ago. And he hasn't quite been the same player since then, but still somebody to keep an eye out for and account for on the field. So without Reuben Foster there, it looks like Ray Ray Armstrong is going to get the start for him. Brock Coyle, our former Seahawk, is the backup to Armstrong. We could see him get some snaps in that linebacking core. 
<coughs> excuse me, he's been used mostly in special teams, but they're kind of shifting guys around. So anytime you don't have continuity at a position group like that, it opens yourself up for miscommunications and yeah. just not having the same sort of, you know, making plays in tandem that we have been so fortunate to see with KJ and Bobby. All right. Well, a lot of different things to consider when you look at the San Francisco 49ers because there's just been so much turnover. I mean, a new head coach, new GM, uh, new quarterback, new defensive coordinator who this Seattle team is very familiar in and Robert Sala, who spent time here. So there's a lot of similarities on the defensive side. And how do you think that can play a potential factor with what our offense needs to be able to do. Well, I think our offense is going to be very familiar with what they're going to see <laughs> exactly because they that. see it every day in practice. I think one of the interesting storylines, too, if you just go to familiarity, John Lynch, their GM, was in the broadcast booth. He called 17 Seahawks games in the Pete Carroll era, which <laughs> means he got production meetings and one-on-one -on -one time with Pete every week. And it's kind of been a joke, but there's a lot of familiarity, not just with the coaching staff, not just with the players, but now with the GM. I, you know, this is going to be a good rivalry in another couple of years right now. San Francisco's in a rebuilding mode. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think it's going to make for some very interesting matchups in the future. Yeah, Pete Carroll definitely joked about those conversations conversations with John Lynch. I think he had he had the insight that John Lynch would now be the GM of a divisional opponent. He probably would have kept some of those secrets closer to the vest. <laughs> but hey, Hindsight is 2020. All right. Well, the San Francisco 49ers come here to Seattle on Sunday as the Seahawks open. That have the home opener for 2017. Everyone is looking forward to. I know the 12s. I'm looking forward to it, Jen. I'm sure you're looking forward to not having to travel and being here at home, but looking forward to this game. And it's a game where Seattle has truly dominated. The Seahawks have won the past six times that San Francisco has come to Seattle and hopefully they can keep that winning streak alive. All right. Well, kickoff for the game is set for 125. You can watch it live on Q13 Fox or, of course, listen to it on the Seahawks radio network with Jen Mueller. I'm Jackie Montgomery. We hope you have a great day and go Hawks.